The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is powered by theflycrate.com, an online fly shop. Join the Quarterly Fly Club today, your source for all things fly fishing. And wait for it films. For action-packed fly fishing videos and camera-related content, check out Wait For It Films on YouTube or at www.thewaitcreativeco.com. And Broken Tippet Fly Company. Blog and fishing apparel and accessories. Check them out online at brokentippet.com. You, you, you are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing ninety seven podcast. Uh, where I live, outside Sacramento, in our foothill region, we probably got twenty or twenty five wineries here. Many of them growing uh, their own grapes, you know, in some hard soils, produce some wonderful reds. Mm. And then, of course, when you go over towards the coastal area, Russian River, Sonoma Valleys, lots and lots of wineries. Uh, up north, in you know Humboldt County, in that area, it's not. It's not wine grapes; it's marijuana. Okay, and that's the that's the big crop, and actually, that's the big crop in the Rogue, Southern Rogue Valley now too. It's you would not believe; it's incredible. Well, the highway total- the highway this podcast is named for is uh, Highway ninety seven, and and as you know, it starts in Weed, California. Right? <laughs> yeah, you can you can stop at the weed shop there and uh, pick up your supply now. Yeah. We're we're legal here in California. I think a lot of people don't realize how far that highway goes and how no. much amazing fishing is on it. I know you do. Well, only because of your podcast, I said, where do you get this 97 from? And so a little bit of research, I realized you're starting at Weed just off Highway 5. So normally I'm turning left or continuing straight up towards the Rogue, Grants Pass and Medford area, and maybe on up to the Umpqua, or occasionally I've turned right and head up in the Upper Klamath, which is a wild trout stream. Not great, but it's okay. And then some fabulous fishing up on Klamath Lakes and the Williamson in that area. And you can keep on going in and up on the Deschutes, mm. where you can fish trout or even summer steelhead as far as, you know, mopping in that area. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. The Fly Crate is an online fly shop where you can save more on flies and gear. Shop between hundreds of unique flies and join the quarterly fly club for hand-picked fly assortments for each season. Exclusively for our podcast listeners, you can save an additional 10% on The Fly Crate by using the code FLYFISH97. Go to theflycrate.com and use the code FLYFISH97 at checkout to save 10%. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Really happy you chose to join us today. We've got something extra special. We have got Dennis P. Lee on the line today. Now, Dennis, has uh, he's he knows a thing or two about steelhead. Now, he, he grew up on the Lower Eel River, catching his first steelhead in 1968 at Humboldt. State University got a bachelor of science degree in fisheries. Uh, this is a fishy guy, and he spends a lot of time on the water. Has authored numerous books. California winter steelhead life history and fly fishing still in print today. We got lots of water to cover on this. Dennis, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Mark. I'm glad to be here. So I uh, let's start. Let's hit the rewind button. Let's start at the beginning. So. Um, you're a pretty fishy guy, and, and you've been doing it a long time. How did the passion for fly fishing and everything fly tying start for you? Well, let me you say you want to back up just a little bit. My passion started in the fourth grade. 
Okay. And so in the fourth grade, I had a teacher who had aquariums, and I became interested in aquariums, and I started getting a few aquariums of my own, which just got more and more and more until our basement in our house was filled with aquariums. I was breeding and growing tropical fish and selling them to local pet stores. And in the fourth and fifth grade, I decided I wanted to be a fishery biologist. Awesome. And I never changed. I never wanted to be a spaceman. I never wanted to be a fireman. I wanted to be a fish biologist. And uh, just kept doing that. Uh, got an associate science degree in a junior college. Looked around at some universities. Out-of-state tuition was very, very expensive. So I settled on Humboldt State University. And uh, I had fished a lot with uh, my father. He was an avid angler. Uh, we fished a little bit in the Sierra Nevada for catchable trout, occasionally bass and catfish. But when I got to Humboldt, I had uh, played water polo and swim for my junior college and then was recruited to swim for Humboldt State. Wow. And we'd gone up earlier in the summer, and they gave us some jobs. And uh, you know, I was thinking, hey, I want to go fishing. So I started looking around, and that's when I started reading some reports and seeing some local information about the Lower Eel River. So sometime in, uh, I think about late August of 1968, I wandered down to the Lower Eel River near Ferndale in a place they called Singley Pool. And uh, down there early in the morning, the coastal fog kind of still shrouded the area, and there was this lineup of these guys with these fly rods, and they were making these casts across this pool to this little kind of clump of, oh, maybe willows on the other side. And it was a little bit deeper over there, and it was holding some uh, early-run salmon, fall chinook, and then a few steelhead. And then every now and then, one of those guys would holler, fish on and rear back, and everybody would clear out. And I said, I just want to do that. And, of course, <laughs> the gear I took with me was not nearly capable of doing that. Even back then, uh, shooting heads were the norm. Usually nine, nine and a half foot uh, fiberglass rods. Graphite wasn't around, of course, then. And uh, I kind of upgraded my tackle, started exploring, tried to learn, and kept fishing and fishing. And the Lower Eel, Klamath, and Trinity kind of became my home waters during those years at Humboldt. Mm, well, you're naming some rivers, and uh, I'm sure you've seen a lot uh, in, in the world of steelhead because it's amazing. I've had a, quite a few um, avid steelheaders on the on the podcast and that fishery has changed a lot and we'll, we'll touch on that, but let's stick with your, your kind of your learning curve. So, so this is where you jumped in. If you had to look back, Dennis, at some of the people that have been influential in kind of setting the stage for you and kind of mentoring you or, you know, just people in general that you learn from, like who would you look to as mentors in the, in the fly fishing and the fisheries space? Well, that's a great question. There's There's been so many people, and I've been so blessed to be around people. Probably our first, my first mentors were a couple of professors at Humboldt State University. Uh, doctors uh, Robert Van Kirk and uh, a couple others were just kind of instrumental. Uh, most of them fly fished, and since we're in the uh, area, most of them fly fished for steelhead. Uh, Dr. Roger Ban- uh, Barnhart, who ran the co-op unit at Humboldt, uh, always were very instrumental. I think they instilled a catch and release philosophy at that time, but everybody fly fished. And uh, I know a lot of people who fish for steelhead talk about fishing conventional gear, but I started out fly fishing and just never changed. Hmm. I was very fortunate at Humboldt. Uh, later, you know, not too long after graduation, got a job with the department and had some great opportunities in that area. Probably one of the, 
probably one that I respect the most was when I was assigned down in the Fresno area and it was in the Central Valley area. There was a, a fellow who operated a wholesale fly tying materials uh, business there, Dave Inks. And uh, we used to hang out at Dave Inks' shop and wine chenille and great necks and things like that. And Dave was a great mentor and I learned about materials. And that was you know, really kind of the start of some of the commercial fly tying that went on overseas. And Dave and Dennis Black were kind of instrumental in that. And then later Dave went and uh, began a business, became known as Creative Sports with the late Andy Puyans. And uh, those and Puyans was a fantastic fly tire. And a lot of us hung out when I was in the Napa Valley at their shop in Walnut Creek. Mm -hmm. uh, again, learning, seeing people coming and go, some really fantastic fire fly tires over that time. And uh, probably the one that uh, I've spent the most time with is a very dear friend, Al Perryman. And uh, I met Al when I was with my first job with the state at the Nimbus Salmon and Steelhead Hatchery there outside Sacramento. And the Rogue River, uh, he fishes every day for summer steelhead when they're in. And uh, he's probably one of the best recognized people in that area as a steelhead expert, fly angler. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's probably been my greatest mentor since then. How important is it to have mentors in your mind, Dennis, in, in the fly fishing space? Like, I mean, for me, it's kind of like part of why we do this, to pass on the knowledge and to learn. You know, you go to any online place, you go to any fly shop, people are so willing in this space to share their knowledge as you are with us today. And for me, I find that it's refreshing because it's not the norm in, in, in kind of all pastimes. No, you're exactly right. It's kind of interesting that uh, if you're on a stream and an angler's caught a fish and you walk up and said, what'd you catch that on? They're going to show you the fly and probably even give you some of them. It's, it's just amazing. You don't find that in most, most sports and most arenas hmm. and in some of the competitive fishing, uh, it's a tough thing. They, you know, you won't find any of that information. So uh, I think that's one of the great things in fly fishing that makes it such a wonderful sport. Mentors, uh, people that help you are so somebody who can show you the ropes. You're standing on the stream. I know I've been like on the rogue with Al. He's on my left shoulder. I'm nervous. And he will say, did you see that fish roll up on your fly? I go, no, I didn't. He says, cast again. Hmm. Mend. Hang on. Here he comes. And I'm like, he sees it, and it's just amazing. So having yeah. people like that is so important. Yeah, well said. I, I want to take some time to get to know you off the water. Are you ready for a few questions that kind of get to know your day-to-day? -day? Sure. All right. Let's um, let's talk. This is kind of a weird question, but let's talk tunes. So if you're on your way to the Rogue, if you're on your way to uh, whatever whatever moving water you happen to be chasing the Steelys on, what's playing in the truck on the stereo? Usually a little... Uh, that's my pick. Uh, sometimes some easy listening stuff. Once in a while, I switch over to some 60s and 70s rock and roll. You know, yep. uh, I'm still I'm from that era, so that's always pleasing to me. Mix it up a little bit. I like it. One go-to steelhead pattern. Now, and I know I know this is probably river specific, but if you're reaching in your fly box, what's a go-to steelhead fly for you, Dennis? Well, since most of it is uh, summer steelhead. It's a muddler minnow. Ah, you know, that is an epic fly. I love that fly. And you know what's cool about that fly is it can be on the surface. It could be subsurface. It could be a sculpin. It could be a, a 
caddis in some sizes, you know? Like, what is it about that pattern you love so much? It's uh, just so buggy. So uh, I'll tie it in sizes eights and sixes for summer fish. But even as big as uh, twos and one-aughts, like on the uh, Umpqua for Umpqua Summer Steelhead, where you're trying to get a big fish up, great pattern. Hmm. Uh, but you're, you're right. It's the first one I reach for most of the time because it's so ubiquitous. And, you know, and normally I'm fishing on a floating line. I'm not normally sinking it. So uh, recently I tried tying a muddler instead of using deer hair. I tied it with a fur. So mm. I used a fur collar and a fur head thinking maybe it'll be a little bit kind of wetter muddler minnow, not so much a dry. Have you fished that yet? No, I just came yeah. up with the idea a little while ago. I had a great piece of uh, be- uh, badger, and it's got that great three-color tick to it. And I thought, man, this would be interesting. I wonder if I could do a muddler minnow out of this. And it was. It was huh. successful. That's awesome. I love it. You know what's funny? So uh, full disclosure, I don't fish for a lot of sea run fish. I have on occasion... You know, we've done the Thompson for steelhead back in the day and, and, and some, some of those type of rivers, maybe closer to the coast. But w- what I love about that muddler you're talking about, brook trout, they oh. gobble that thing up. And I don't know why, but they just love it. Wow. Yeah. Do you fish for a lot of trout in your neck of the woods too? I mean, are you strictly a steelhead guy? I've, we do have some, you know, very good trout fishing. And when during the season, especially with my wife, We'll do some lakes and things like that. Mm. Uh, it's a little bit easier. Uh, it's tougher waiting. You know, it's as we're getting older, it's just more difficult waiting some of the runs and stuff like that. So we do fish. We've got a drift boat. We'll put it on some of the lakes, fish for trout. I'll roll her around. Um, I don't do so much in the Sierra Nevada anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I save my days for those days on the Klamath and Rogue and occasionally the Umpqua. Oh, man. Yeah, you're hitting some chords there. Let's talk go-to places to talk fishing. So as somebody that's embedded in this space as, you know, as a uh, California Department of Fish and Game since 1970, um, authoring books, spending so much time chasing steelhead uh, in Oregon and, and California, what, where do you get your fix when you're not on the river? So uh, what I mean by that, Dennis, is there a fly shop you hang out at? Is there a, you know, a local fly club you frequent? Where do you get your fix when you're not in your waders? Well, most of the time I would hang out at one of the local fly shops. We've got a great one uh, outside Sacramento, Fly Fishing Specialties. Uh, Rick Anderson is the manager, owner, and uh, he does a wonderful job. I tell everybody that they've got the best selection of fly tying materials from from Marriott's in Southern California all the way to uh, uh, Deschutes and uh, Maupin. And uh, that's they have probably the best. Uh, John and Amy's got the best stuff any place. But uh, Rick does a wonderful job. So I usually hang out there. Uh, if I leave the house, it's about 30 minutes. But I tell my wife, I'll be back in several hours. So <laughs> it's great. It's great. To, you know, and I'll have customers come up yeah. and ask me about stuff and I'll help them and all that sort of stuff. I just find that enjoyable helping people like that. So it's usually a couple hours there. And uh, now I'm getting a little hesitant because uh, the price of fuel now, you know, we're at uh, six ninety nine for a gallon of diesel. And, you know, that's 15 miles. So I'm yeah. spending two gallons just to get over to the fly shop and back. So I'm kind of slowing it down a little bit. So you're spending more in the fly shop though, I assume, than you are on the fuel. That's, that's uh, the danger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Always. It, what is it about a fly shop that it's just a time warp? Like you can kill an hour and a half, two hours and not even blink. It's the people. 
Mm. It's the people there, yeah. both the customers coming in, yeah. the people that are running the shop. Usually they're friendly. They need to be friendly, but usually they are. And it's something we all enjoy and have a common yeah. common thing with. It's such a cool culture. I've, I've always, um, I just gravitate to it. It's like, you know, sharing the knowledge and finding out what's happening and, and, and talking patterns and, and just kind of what's hot, what's not. It's, uh, yeah, it's amazing. L- let's talk about, I assume you're a sports guy, knowing you had uh, a sports background, water polo at, uh, right. you know, at Humboldt. Um Talk to me about sports. So when you're cheering for your team, are you a Niners fan? Are you, uh, you know, a hockey oh, yeah. guy? Who, who do you no, pull for? No, it's 49ers down here and the Giants. So we don't we do not do season tickets or anything like that, but we do follow them. We always have the games on during the season on the TV. We may not be sitting there glued to it, but we are watching it all the time and hoping for the best. My wife's from Ohio. She's an Ohio Buckeye, so I have to root for, <laughs> for uh, Oregon. So uh, we have a little bit of competition every now and then. Hold on, Oregon. Are we talking ducks or beavers? Yeah, no, no ducks. I'm sorry. Ducks. Yeah, that's okay. Just because Humboldt, uh, Humboldt has a football team, the Lumberjacks, but you'll never hear of them. And so I had to adopt somebody that you know you have a little yeah. nationwide notoriety. So I I adopted the Oregon Ducks. So we can go round and round with the Buckeyes. Where's Jimmy G going now? This is going to air in a couple weeks, so it's probably already <laughs> happened. But where where do you think he's going? I, I'm not sure. It's hard to say. It's only opportunity. What do you I, I think, don't know. What do you think of him as a quarterback for your team? Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's I'll, fair. I'll give you that. I'm, I'm like, okay. Yeah. We'll see how he performs, you know. Jeez, I thought, man, I thought you guys might have a crack at Tom Brady at one point. I don't know why. Um, really? Who's coming your way? Who's going to be your quarterback this year? You guys don't even know. Well, yeah, you got Trey Lance, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, I thought, uh, uh, um, Jimmy did a pretty good job for the years he was here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. you know, it's on and off. 49ers are up one year, down the next year. It's left, right, up, down. It's crazy. Watching your team this year, though, it smelled like Super Bowl. If you just yes. had just that little, I mean, the yep. defense yep. was amazing. Yep. They pulled yep. together as a team, and I just, just the, the little bit of upside in that QB position, I think you would have been laughing. Yeah. They've got they've got a couple good Ohio defensive guys that my wife just loves and we just watch them mostly. <laughs> it's funny when you start watching players and that and that to me is part of what I love about a lot of professional sports. If you follow them through the college ranks, you kind of you know you can watch other games and go, hey, there's my guy, he's over there, and you know I love that stuff. Good yeah, the stuff. only thing I can say is the uh, Buckeyes are rated. I think they're number seventh in the uh, March Madness stuff right now. Yep. Yep. We're all over that, and that's uh, that's an exciting time of year for sure. Um, let's talk about, this is a little bit philosophical, but um, if you had to look at your fly fishing journey so far, Dennis, what, why do you do this? What do you get out of it? Wow, that's a tough question. I guess since I've been involved with it so long, I just find it so enjoyable. It offers so many different aspects of, uh, you can enjoy just the aspect of going fishing and catching a fish, but I think most people who are fly fishing are just about long past that. So you have the enjoyment of being out there. Uh, sometimes there's some camaraderie with somebody you enjoy being with, you sharing things. But even if you're not on the water, you can be tying flies, dreaming about doing it. Uh, you may be into boats. 
and trying to figure out your next drift boat, how to power your your drifter, whatever. Mm. Um, you can be building rods. I mean, there's so many things you can do. You can write stories about it. You can do podcasts about it. I mean, <laughs> it's so many different things about the whole fly fishing world. That And in listening to podcasts, yours over the years, you have such a variety of people. It's yeah. amazing, the variety. I agree. And I, I, I love getting people's stories. And, and, and one thing, a frequent topic on this show is how much knowledge you really pick up from fly fishing. There's so much more than just the fishing, right? You know, whether it's the Absolutely. entomology. Are Absolutely. you a big entomology nut? Uh, I was there in school. Mm-hmm. And then uh, later on did a lot of that, you know, locally. Not so much steelheading. You know, we, we really don't, you know, key in on that. Although uh, I do bring that up in the books because we have some pretty interesting issues with the Klamath and the Rogue. With You know, since we're dealing with a summer fish, they become more trout-like and are feeding. And there's some good research studies. And uh, I tie actually tie a uh, pat- I tie two patterns. One's a stonefly, which is kind of like a golden stone nymph mm-hmm. that I fish a lot on the Klamath. And then we also have this little, uh, not real little, but kind of a pretty good-sized mayfly, an Isonychia velma. And uh, those two do appear on the streams, and, and I tend to key more into that. But I don't think the steelhead are that selective. Probably I'm tying those and fishing them more for, for myself than actually for the fish. Yeah, fair. How often have you managed to get steelhead by skating? You know, something up top on a dry. Not that often. But I do it, but they'll come up, they'll blow up on it, uh, they disappear. And then usually I go, all right, and I'll put a wet fly on and swing it through and I'll catch them immediately. <laughs> but a uh, lot of refusals, you know, that's just uh, just the nature of the game. So yeah. I can't say that I'm, you know, I do it a lot and uh, I find it very enjoyable, especially in the fall when the October caddis around. Uh, I tie a pretty good size October caddis pattern with an orange body. And then again, a deer hair, you know, keep it simple. Mm-hmm. It's more simple than a muddler minnow. And I like to put that on the surface and sometimes wake it or even pop it a little bit across the surface. And especially for our, our you know, late summer, early fall fish on the uh, Klamath and Rogue, you can get fish up very easily that way. What is it? The river systems you tend to fish seem to be surrounded by wine country. Is that a coincidence? <laughs> I mean, you're talking uh, Russian River Valley here. You're talking uh, the Rogue. I mean, you're talking about some, you know, am I just blowing smoke here? Just an observation. No, no, no. Uh, both the now portion of Central California where I live more, you know, because wine grapes are so much a premium. Uh, we've got the Napa Valley, obviously. Uh, where I live outside Sacramento in our foothill region, we've probably got 20 or 25 wineries here. Many of them growing uh, their own grapes, you know, in some hard soils, producing wonderful reds. Mm. And then, of course, when you go over towards the coastal area, Russian River, Sonoma Valley's, Lots and lots of wineries uh, up north in you know Humboldt County in that area. It's not it's not wine grapes. It's marijuana. Okay. And that's the that's the big crop. And actually, that's the big crop in the Rogue Southern Rogue Valley now too. It's you would not believe it's incredible. Well, the highway yeah, total- the highway this podcast is named for is uh, Highway ninety seven, and and as you know. It starts in Weed, California, right? <laughs> yeah, you can you can stop at the weed shop there and uh, pick up your supply now. Yeah. We're we're legal here in California. I think a lot of people don't realize how far that highway goes and how no. much amazing fishing is on it. I know you do. Well, only because of your podcast, and I said, 
where do you get this 97 from? And so a little bit of research, I realized you're starting at Weed just off Highway 5. So normally I'm turning left or continuing straight up towards the road, Grants Pass and Medford area, and maybe on up to the Umpqua. Or occasionally I've turned right and head up in the Upper Klamath, which is a wild trout stream. Not great, but it's okay. And then some fabulous fishing up on Klamath Lakes and the Williamson and in that area. And you can keep on going and end up on the Deschutes hmm. where you can fish trout or even summer steelhead as far as, you know, mopping in that area. I love it. Yeah, 97 is great. When you're not fly fishing for steelies, what are you normally doing? Usually I'm in my little shed. I've got an 8 by uh, 12 shed out in the back of the property where uh, it's all insulated, power, and uh, I can tie flies. I do a lot of writing. Uh, my wife has constantly asked me to do a blog for our website to kind of keep interest going. I occasionally do some articles for, uh, I like to do articles for California Fly Fisher. Um, that's a good local publication. They have a, it's a kind of a big format uh, newspaper type thing. Yeah. And uh, it hones in on California. And uh, Richard Anderson's a wonderful person that publishes that. He's a really a great guy. We occasionally do advertisements in the magazine for our books, too. We have very limited opportunities. The books are so hard to uh, hard to produce because doing hardback books is so expensive that mm. it's so difficult to do it through a wholesaler or retailer. So we do it all ourselves. So talk to me about your website while we're on we're on the topic. Like, um, so if we want to look up, I know you still have California Winter Steelhead in print. If somebody wants to pick up one of your books, how do we find your site? What's the best place? It's uh, real easy. It's just www.dennispeely.com. And so the books are available. You can order them directly. You know, we use PayPal, so there's a variety of ways of purchasing. And they're uh, $100 a copy. We've uh, sold all of the half-pounder books. We constantly get requests for that book. We only did 500 copies. Every one is a hardback, linen cover, foil stamped, you know, hundreds of pages, full color. And each one's signed and numbered and uh i've seen one copy up here on a used book site for about 250 dollars so we did we released the winter steelhead book now realizing that i've got a third one i'm cooking on now which is going to finish the some california summer steelhead and that's going to include both the half founders and all our spring run fish and opportunities for that same format probably another 300 page hardback book and we'll make that available just like this one we're at about 325 or 30 on the winter book, and we just released it a little more than a year ago. So we expect those to be all gone within the next year. You don't half-ass anything, do you? Like, I mean, hard, hardback, hardcover books are—they're hard to come by. I'm just being honest. Like, just chatting. I, I get a lot of authors come on the show, and it's a commitment, right? Especially when you're you're self-publishing. I'm sure that's a, a big investment. So what? Where do you get that drive to get that out there? I'm always curious about that kind of thing. Well, it's a, a good story, but after retirement, so I had spent uh, about uh, eight years supervising our Klamath River Salmon and Stewart Research Project. And to complete that project, we did a, a major, oh, about 125, 130-page report, like a data report. It basically fulfilled our contract obligation with the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, who, who funded it. But after retirement, I, I found a copy of that. Someone had scanned it and put it online. 
And I said, wow, all this great information has never been available to anglers. You know, time of migration, speed of migration, how big are the fish, all that. How big are the runs? Mm. So I started writing a little, uh, I thought I'd do a little article for a magazine. And the more I got into it, I realized that most people did not have a good understanding of the life half, half pounder life history. So I kind of kept at it. And pretty soon I was like, man, I got to include the rogue in this and the eel. So my wife had uh, gone back to school and she's a techie and has all that stuff. And she does all of her uh, number one son's uh, real estate business advertising, all of his website stuff and all that. Mm-hmm. So I walked into her and I said, do you know this software called uh, InDesign? And she said, why do you want to know? I <laughs> says, well, I was thinking about writing a book. Oh, well, that started the process. So I wrote it, but she published it. So we as, the Half Pounder book was a huge learning process. The Winter Steelhead book was not as difficult. It still takes about a year because there's so much research that I do in that information. The first three chapters are just life history, science, and biology. Then we get into the rivers, the runs, the status, all that stuff. And finally, the last chapters talk about actual fly fishing and then finally a section on conservation. Each book includes about 150 color plates of steelhead flies. So the Half Pounder book, goes back to the late 1800s and everything was used then and the winter steelhead book has this real expanse of modern winter steelhead flies you know all the articulated stuff all the things that are used nowadays i noticed you you were on uh, one of my favorite podcasts which is the wet fly swing with my buddy dave um yes. and you're talking about the hat i just i just i just noticed i don't know how i didn't see this in your bio but uh, what was that experience like chatting with Dave? I know he's uh, well, he's out of Portland, isn't he? So he's, he's yeah, probably well, yeah, yeah. He's near south of Portland, a ways. Yep. Yep. He's a wonderful. He's a wonderful guy. He does these segments on various topics, mm-hmm. which are just fabulous. He just did one with Ray Troll, who's out of Ketchlin, who does the T-shirts. Yeah. But uh, if you look, Ray Troll is actually a paleontologist. I mean, his stuff is amazing and mm-hmm. mind blowing. If you get on his podcast and want to learn about dinosaurs, ichthyosaurs, plesiosaurs, and all those things. But, uh, yeah, Dave has a great podcast. Yeah, he does. He's up around over 300 now. Yeah, he's been at it a while, and he's been a big inspiration for this show. And we've he's been on mine, I've been on his. Um, yeah, good stuff. And I, 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 it kind of dawned on me that you guys are probably fishing some of the same waters, and I know he's an avid steelhead chaser on that uh that wet fly swing that it's, it's a system. So, I mean, you probably realize this, Dennis, I'm kind of in Stillwater country, so I'm living vicariously through you here. So <laughs> a lot of the steelhead rivers that we have in my area have kind of gone the way of the dodo bird. How, how's, how's the California waters? How's the Oregon waters? How, how's the steelhead situation in, in, in the rivers that you spend a lot of your time? Uh, I probably spend most of my time on the American River, which flows through, you know, Sacramento. And we have a fall Chinook and a winter steelhead run. It's a non-native run. Uh, It's not great. The uh, fall Chinook is okay. You know, California, Central Valley fall Chinook populations are down like every place else. Our winter steelhead is not great. It's a short season, two or three months. And, you know, if you catch two or three fish on a fly, that's good. Uh, Conventional anglers obviously do much better. The reason for writing the Winter Steelhead book is most people don't realize the huge losses from San Francisco southward that we've experienced in California. Recognizing that rivers in Southern California had fabulous runs, you know, after the turn of the century, 
even as far south as the Tijuana River had steelhead runs. And most people aren't aware of that and actually fabulous sport fisheries. So that was part of the reason for writing the book. Mm. Having spent uh, the late 60s and the 70s on the Klamath, Trinity, and the Rogue, uh, I thought fishing was good. Uh, we caught you know anywhere from 10 to 12 half-pounders a day, and that's the way it is in California. The majority yep. of our anglers are obviously you know conventional anglers fishing inland. The fly anglers make up a small portion, and uh, people who fish for steelhead since our runs are down and it's just not as good as it was, mm. uh, are much, much limited. So we do have a, you know, you do have to buy a steelhead punch card in which you keep track of your catch here, whether you keep it or not. And it's used for some reporting aspects, but, uh, the numbers are, are really not very big. Something I'm curious about Dennis is like how, how many of those fish are truly wild fish or are they all hatchery? Well, I can give you those numbers. For example, here on the American river, which is a uh, non-indigenous winter steelhead run. It was brought into the American River after the dam was put in, the hatchery constructed in 1955. And they brought over Eel River fish in the late 50s. And in spite of putting a whole bunch of other fish in there, other steelhead stocks, the Eel River strain wins out. So they're 100% hatchery fish. You see very few fish that are not. Now, recognizing since 1999 in California, all progeny of steelhead, or adipose fin clipped. So they keep pretty good track of that. So going up north, like for example, on the uh, Klamath and Trinity, there are hatcheries at the upper end of both those rivers. Trinity River Hatchery on the Trinity and Iron Gate up near the Oregon border. Uh, Trinity River uh, is still operating well. Their steelhead program is good. They've had a few reductions in numbers of releases of uh, juvenile fish, but uh, they do monitor that run downriver through a weir, and probably 60% of the Trinity River fish are hatchery produced. Hmm. Now, since a, a drought period in the late 90s on uh, the Klamath and Trinity system, Iron Gate steelhead program just crashed, and it's never come back. So if I see an adipose fin cliff fish on the Klamath side, uh, I'm surprised, and I suspect it's probably a stray from the Trinity. Now, down below the confluence of the two rivers, you get a mixture of both half uh wild and and uh, hatchery fish but by and large on that system most of them are uh wild fish the rogue is in a similar situation although at the top end cold rivers hatchery produces uh, about six hundred thousand uh smolts annually so you see a mixture uh, i would say a few more of the hatchery fish than wild fish but it's a good mix in that upper river we're chatting today with Dennis P. Lee. Now, Dennis has, uh, he knows a thing or two about steelhead and has spent a lot of time on the water uh, since 1970 with the California Department of Fish and Game, authored many books on steelhead, um, some of which are still in print today, hard hardcover books. Um, now, for a serious book collector, check it out, California Winter Steelhead, Life, History, and Fly Fishing. Go to www.dennispleeh.com. Dot com. Dennis, here's a weird question for you, man, but I'm a big strains guy. I, I love exploring the different strains we have, whether it's rainbow trout or steelhead, which are obviously closely related. Of the waters that you have fished your whole life, is there a special strain to you that is like, this is the definition of a steelhead? Probably the Eel River winter run is probably that fish. Uh, they're big, 
they're bright. Uh, normally fish for uh, in the lower river. Uh, the south fork of the eel gets a good push of fish also. Uh, the runs are, in my opinion, are starting to come back since we had the big floods in 55 and 64, which just wiped out the drainages. There was a lot of you know, human-caused human activity in the watersheds that with the big floods just led to horrific destruction of habitat. But I believe there's been coming back. And so uh, the Eel River winter fishery has been coming back. Uh, of course, the best fishing for fly anglers are drought periods, which is obviously not the best time for the fish. And actually, since uh, our major droughts in California back in the uh, 90s, we have these low flow restrictions. So there are some minimum flows and the rivers close until you get some push of water in the fall. So uh, anglers need to, you know, those are all listed in the angling regulation book. But that low flow closure has eliminated those fisheries that I loved in August and September, those early fisheries. Mm -hmm. Usually there's not enough water you can fish any of those coastal streams until you get the big push. But the Eel River winter stock is, uh, you know, a, a December, January type fishery, sometimes in as late as February and March. I always like to talk weather conditions because when you're talking about sea run fish, for me, the minute that water starts to rise and colors up, those fish get a little bold, they get, they get moving. What's your perfect conditions for steelhead? That, that would be at a rise in water. So you've got a, a series of storm events which are bringing fish in, usually sometime after Thanksgiving. And then you get a drop in flows, and so it starts getting that cold period. Where, and we don't have a lot of snow, so you're not going to get a lot of snow in the mountains that are going to add anything if you get a warm day. Not like as you get up into uh, portions of Oregon where you've got a lot more driven, snow-driven rivers. So uh, that is a perfect time, and that's when some of the best catches are made. Now, obviously, during that period, the fish are more vulnerable, but that's when you get that clearing water starting to get that kind of greeny color and you can still swing a fly through that. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a small window, isn't it? When it's perfect, you know, like it's, it's just either starting to color up or it's just starting to clear up, but it's that space where you can see the fly, but maybe they're a little, they're less weary of predators, right? That's right. Now that's the winter fish, but the late summer fall fish, you know, the water is crystal clear. Hmm. Uh, we're fishing floating lines, and I know the fly is not more than a few feet, few inches under the surface. And those fish, since they've been in the stream for maybe many weeks or even a month or two, uh, are very trout-like, and they'll rise to a fly. I haven't fished a – the only time I'll switch over to a sinking line is after Thanksgiving when water temperatures drop to below about 45 degrees. Then I'll go to a sink tip or a skagit with a head on it. Otherwise, it's all scandy long leaders and, and muddler minnows or something like that on the end. Small buggy flies. Yeah, that's awesome. I, you, know, I, you, talk, you, go you ahead. mentioned conditions, yeah. but uh, my favorite water is a, a nice big pool with a beautiful tail out. And especially if it's got a heavy rough section down below, I think those fish come up over that, maybe just a little bit tired and they settle down there and they rest there. Maybe they'll begin moving a little bit later. But to me, that's absolutely the perfect spot to find those fish. Hmm. Yeah, I like it. It makes sense. Uh, and reading water is such a big part of what we do. And I mean, as somebody that basically grew up in the, you know, in the Department of Fish and Game and, and, and you've got so much education behind you, so much time on the water, learning from, you know, the likes of Al Perryman and 
uh, some of your other buddies on the water. Like how much, how much of what you do is reading, reading the water and kind of trying to figure out where's that steelhead, where's that fish laying? I think that's probably uh, most of it. So you got two aspects. One, you want to go fish, you want to go cast, and so you're going to fish all the water. So you just start at the top, start fishing your way, stepping down, and you swing through the whole run. But you probably know that down someplace in that run, there's the bucket. And that's where your expectation is you're going to find the fish. And that's usually from experience. And it could be uh, a rock, you know, that's maybe submerged. And you go, oh, I know that. In the past, there's always been one or two hanging around that rock. Or there's a, a tail out that's a little bit deeper and a little bit faster shoot on one side. And you know that's the bucket. But usually that's the case. But it doesn't mean that normally I go right to the bucket and start fishing it. I enjoy fishing too much. So I usually start at the top, and I fish the whole thing down. And you'll find fish scattered out sometimes. Yeah, I love it. Have you read a lot of um, Roderick Haig Brown? Just out of curiosity. Yes, I have, I have his whole collection of books, yes. I That I, that still haunts me reading those. And uh, I remember reading those when I was, oh, was a pretty young kid. And, and, and actually one of the... One of my old-time fishing buddies, he's older now, but he actually um, ran into Roderick Haig Brown. I might have, might have come before him in court. But um, <laughs> he, he, he tells me what it was like, uh, you know, even knowing, even fishing the same water as somebody like that. But I re- when you read his books, that's got to be something that's probably pretty inspiring for a big steelheader. His books uh, are fabulous. I have a great library. I always look for new books on steelhead or even old books. And I'm kind of expanding to some of the Atlantic salmon stuff, some of the really old stuff. It's kind of interesting. Mm. And you get all kinds of tips and ideas and thinking about how they how they approached fishing back then. Yeah. A little bit different than we do now. But Hake Brown, of course, is one of our you know fabulous writers. Uh, the memoir book, the last one that uh, came out, is probably, I think, one of the most interesting with his essays. A fabulous book. I love I love what you're doing with your books though as far as like and 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 to be quite honest Dennis this is why I do the podcast is to kind of catalog and record some of this stuff cuz you know we've had the likes of Lonnie Wall or yourself on here some 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 fly fishers that I don't always hear the stories and I know you're a little different cuz you're out there and you're you're doing a lot of um you know shows whether there's fly fishing uh clubs or whatnot presentations and um I think that stuff is so important because a, a lot of people are giving this information for free, but I think it's critical that we record it, whether it's written or audio. Do you have any thoughts on that? I love books, and uh, that's why I you know, collect old books and then try and do as much reading as I've always read. I love reading. I'm so disappointed to see so much emphasis placed on the Internet and that type of information rather than sitting down and reading a book, and especially among younger people. Mm-hmm. Uh, books can be so worthwhile. Which was probably, you know, there's several aspects to writing and publishing and actually printing a book. One is ego. You know, wow, I wrote a book. How cool is that? You know, I can share it with my family and say, hey, look what I did. But uh, my first goal was to explain to anglers what half-pounder steelhead were and provide a lot of information on biology, life history. Mm -hmm. The second book on winter steelhead was helping people understand what we had lost in California and what we're losing now. And, and I go through all the rivers in Southern California and talk about what they were like in the 1800s. One of the most fortunate things we have is in the last 10 or 15 years, many of the old newspapers have been digitized. And if you know how to research, you can find them. 
And there wasn't a lot of fish writing back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, but you will find accounts in those old newspapers. And throughout my books, I reference that where they talk about John S. Ben traveling by steamer from San Francisco to Eureka. He's going to show up and chase the finny dizens of the Eel River and show us his fly tying skills. And he'll catch 60 fish in a day. Wow. The, re- the can, reports are incredible. Can on you the imagine? Of fish. 60 no, steelhead in a day? Yeah, anywhere from, from one half pound, which are the half pounders, up to 12 and 14 pounds in July and August. Wow. And I'm still trying to figure out what those fish were. And that their season started in July back then, and that's gone, hmm. all gone in California. It's amazing. And it, it, I don't blame people for that. A lot of it has to do with changes in general. And, you know, we're at the southern extent of the Steelhead Range, and they're basically gone from Southern California. Do you ever feel and, sometimes like you're chasing ghosts? All the time. Every one of them is a ghost. And when I catch it, I just am so happy. Even the half pounders, they're all, it's all, everyone's special. Well, and that's the, you're seeing the potential, right? You're seeing, I think a lot of people probably catch small steelhead and just think, oh, this is a rainbow trout, right? Like, cause I know where I'm at. There's a, the river that I'm on flows into the Columbia. Okay. One of the biggest, one of the biggest salmon, most important rivers probably on the planet. And there used to be steelhead in my backyard. There's not anymore, but um, the native band, uh, along with fisheries have been working super hard on getting sockeye salmon back, getting, uh, Chinook back in the system. I can only hope that one day, maybe there might be a few steelhead here and there. And I know there's some get through, um, once in a while, but it's a rare. And I, I the reason I said chasing ghosts, because I hear these stories from old timers. It's like, yeah, I've never seen that, but that would have, I can't imagine stepping out the front door and getting into 60 steelhead in a day. It's, there's, there's only been a couple you know, books on steelhead fishing in Northern California that were written uh, back in the late 40s, 50, early 50s, uh, Fish to a Fly by Van Fleet. And uh, there's some great stories in there. And a lot of it was Klamath and Rogue River stuff, a little bit on the eel mm-hmm. and uh, amazing stories of great catches. It's, it's incredible. I've referenced a lot of that in my books, trying to make, you know, not everyone has copies of those old books. If you can find them online, they're usually very expensive from a used bookseller. So I've tried to reiterate what we had and what it was and also explain what we have today and still provide anglers what we have and what opportunities are available to them. Yeah. And if we can't learn from the past, uh, you know, in my mind, as as conservationists, it makes us want to recreate that. And, and there's there's value in that. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. What's on your bucket list? What's going on in your, in your fishing world? Is there any waters you're like, man, I need to fish this for steelhead, or I want to go any destinations, any places you're like, man, I got to go there. Well, of course, the uh, couple of bucket lists uh, have always been attained. You know, one for me has been Tierra del Fuego, uh, not for steelhead, but for sea run brown trout. Uh, I think that would be absolutely interesting. Uh, mainly because it's so amazing, that fishery down there on a couple of those rivers. Also, uh, there's a couple places down that are starting to develop uh, steelhead runs. I think it's the Santa Maria River. Okay. And uh, it was stocked with some resident rainbows years ago and now has developed a steelhead run and is starting to see bits and pieces about that. But the big sea run browns, Rio Gallegos and others, are just that's just amazing. The uh, difficulties in getting there, the expenses usually slows me up. But that's probably on my bucket list. 
And I would probably do that one before I do even BC and the Skeena and that, mm. just because of the unique fishery down there. Yeah. I think those sea run browns would just be so interesting to catch. You just got to sell a few more books, right? And then it's a walk in the park. Exactly. <laughs> and take my wife with take my wife with me. That's key. That's key. Awesome. Um, any crazy fish stories? I always like to ask my guests, is there anything that's weird that's happened to you in your time on the water, That whether it's a wildlife encounter or you wouldn't believe this, but this actually happened? Well, probably one of my best stories, which actually started uh, Dave Stewart's podcast, was uh, my friend Al Perry and I were on the uh, Rogue, I mean, excuse me, on the Klamath, and we were camped, and we just couldn't find any maps for a stretch of the river below us to see what it was like and what there was. Uh, there was a Forest Service map which listed a class four, a couple class four uh, rapids down through this run we wanted to do. It's about eight eight miles. Uh, we had my drift boat, which is a little more flat bottom than a real, real good, say, uh, whitewater boat. And uh, an old guy had come in and he's pulling his clients out. And we said, Dude, what's the river like down below? He said, oh, it's OK. There's a few rocks. But that's the ball. So uh, we thought, well, we'll we'll do this. And so we did the shuttle and uh, we knew there was a place downriver called Hamburg Falls. And uh, it was a class four. And uh, we stopped ahead of Hamburg Falls got out and scaled it, and Al said to me, I don't know how we're going to go through that. I said, we can't go back, and we can't hike out of the canyon to the road. We have to go through it. He said, okay. And so he was on the oars, and we took that six-foot drop in that boat, and he pulled hard. We were running into a cliff, and he still swears to this day that he pulled his shoulder out, and it still bothers him for pulling on the oars to keep us from crashing the rock. And we had about three of those down through that stretch and now we know why none of the fishing guides run that stretch of the klamath river <laughs> that's great i love i love stories like that um white water you got to respect it and and it doesn't even have to be that gnarly to be dangerous and uh let's face it there's a reason that we uh when somebody tells you you can't go there, what do you want to do, right? That's <laughs> exactly. That's where I want to try it. That's where that log of a fish is hiding. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you. Um, in your mind, Dennis, is there anything about the world of fly fishing, whether it's steelhead or or tying or just otherwise, is there anything you'd like to see us do a little differently? Is there anything we could be doing better in your mind as a group? Uh, not so much better. I think uh, all the innovation is fabulous. You know, all the new ways of tying flies, new materials, uh, rods. Uh, I love the old reels and classic reels and things like that. But uh, the one thing that has uh, bothered me in fly fishing is the development of competitive fly fishing. So I was very much instrumental uh, starting about 1972 as California began with the bass tournament craze which yeah. still goes on and uh i as part of my work you know we was heavily involved in a permitting process and trying to track that and uh, what i recognize is that as soon as you put some type of incentive out there whether it be a trophy a, a plaque or money or anything else all of a sudden that camaraderie we talked about earlier disappears it is gone and that's the one sad thing I see about fly fishing is the competition. I wish they wouldn't do it. I don't see an advantage to it, whether it be just the, the fun stuff. But even in the fun stuff, 
it takes away that that willing to give because now the goal is to catch fish and to win not to share Mm, that's you know what it's because I, I have a lot of as you know I have a lot of competitive fly fishers on on the show and and the reason I do that is because I think that learning curve is so immense right the, when you're when you're like you have to catch fish you you mentioned Bathmasters that's a good example and I I love your candor on that I love your honesty and I I I I, I understand what you're saying for sure and uh, for me I just look at this as a platform hey how can we get better as fly fishers how can we share that information the one thing I will say that talking to competitive fly fishers Dennis they are quite sharing especially if you're on their team but you know <laughs> you know what I mean it's like there's well, there, yeah. there's a willingness to share but I think there's sometimes there's secretive um, aspects oh, yeah. with patterns and 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 I guarantee methods you. Yeah. And, I, I've yeah. seen it too much and yeah if you're on your team everybody's sharing yeah and everybody's going to figure out how to do it but yeah. you're not sharing that information with the other team and next week, you're probably not going to share what you did and how you did it either. So you may get some out of it, but uh, as soon as the rewards are on the line, I think it changes. That's human nature. But I recognize that. Yeah. It, you know what, man? I, I really appreciate you taking the time today. I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you. And I think if you ever have the time, I think, or you ever have another book coming out, which sounds like you do, um, we should have another chin wag and, and, and find out what you're up to. And maybe you can tell me about those Sea Run Browns down, down south. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. Thank you very much. Dennis, it's, it's been a pleasure. We've been chatting today with Dennis P. Lee, consulting fishery scientist. He has been with the uh, California Department of Fish and Game since 1970. He's now retired, but still doing some consulting, still doing presentations, and still writing. Check out his books. His, um, one that you can find for sure is California Winter Steelhead, Life History, and Fly Fishing. Uh, check him out at www.dennispleeson.com. Dot com. Thanks so much for joining us this time around. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water. Mm-hmm.